Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have two guests today, uh, Cyrus Kimbata and Robbie Barbaro. Uh, they're co-founders of uh, Living with Type 1 Diabetes, and they've, they've done a book uh, that I've spotted on Amazon recently. It's got a lot of great reviews, uh, Mastering Diabetes. And I wanted to speak to them because um, uh, various coaches in the diabetes world will talk about low-carb, um, maybe ketogenic diets, et cetera, and they seem to have a different take. So I wanted to see what they have to say and um, hopefully there's multiple ways for people to combat diabetes and to feel good. So guys, thanks for coming. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having us here. We appreciate it. Yeah. yeah. Really glad to be on your show. Well, what makes you guys, uh, what made you guys interested in this subject here? Well, um, personal experience here for, for me, uh, in the year 2002, uh, I was diagnosed with type one diabetes. So generally type one affects young children, you know, the age of two, three, eight, five, um, except I got it at the age of 22, which is relatively late. And um, I didn't really understand what was happening to my health at the time. All I knew was that I was extremely thirsty. I was very low energy. And um, so I showed up at the doctor's office because I said, wait a minute, something doesn't feel right. And while I was there, they basically checked my blood glucose and uh, took me straight to the hospital because my blood glucose was six times higher than it was supposed to be. So it's supposed to be somewhere Jeez. in the low 100s and it was up in the high 600s. So while I was there at the hospital, they basically diagnosed me with type one diabetes, which is an autoimmune condition. And then in addition to that, they also diagnosed me with two other autoimmune conditions. Well, well, the first one is Hashimoto's hypothyroidism. And then the other one is alopecia universalis, which is just fancy scientific jargon for, uh, has no hair. So I effectively lost my hair, developed Hashimoto's hypothyroidism and type one diabetes within a six month period. So I knew oh, this something was like horrendously wrong. I just didn't know what it was. So doctors told me to eat a low carbohydrate diet because you know, a low carbohydrate diet is to a certain extent, kind of a one size fits all prescription for people living with all forms of diabetes. And I said, okay, fine. You know, I can do the low carbohydrate thing. Um, and I have no problem eating red meat, white meat, chicken, fish, olive oil, peanut butter, turkey burgers. It's not a big deal. Like I enjoy those foods anyway. So why, why would I not, why would I say no? Um, and then at the same time, I was trying to limit my intake of potatoes and rice and corn and fruits because again, I was trying to keep my carbohydrate intake low. So um, it was supposed to keep my blood glucose nice and controlled. And it's supposed to make my insulin use uh, very level and you know very predictable, but the exact opposite happened. And my glucose became higher and higher and higher. And I felt like I was using more insulin over the course of time. I started out using like 25 units of insulin a day. And then that became 30, 32, 36, 42, 45. Some days I would be using 50 units of insulin. And it just, it literally made no sense to me because, you know, I'm an engineer at heart and something about this equation just seemed like it was not constructed properly. So long story short, I ended up doing a bunch of research. I found a nutrition pro whose name is uh, Dr. Doug Graham, and he taught me 
how to transition to a low fat plant-based whole food diet. And he said, you know what, I'm going to take you under my wing and you're going to see some pretty amazing things happen to your body. So I said, great, let's do it. So under his guidance, I started eating lots of fruits and lots of vegetables. And I virtually overnight eliminated all those other animal products that I mentioned earlier. And in the world of type one diabetes, if you go from, you know, eating a diet that's low in carbohydrate to a diet that's high in carbohydrate, your blood glucose is likely to skyrocket, you know, at least within the first couple of days or weeks. So I was predicting that my glucose would go up and I was predicting that my insulin use would go up, but the exact opposite happened once again. And, uh, you know, I was increasing my carbohydrate intake from these whole fruits and vegetables and my glucose just plummeted like a rock. So my blood glucose was lower. Uh, and as a result of that, I had to back off on the amount of insulin I was giving myself. So to put things in perspective in one week, I cut my insulin use by 40%, which is a massive change for someone living with type one diabetes. But here's the kicker. I was cutting my insulin use by 40% while eating six times the number of grams of carbohydrate energy. So I was eating, you know, 600 grams of carbohydrate per day. And my, my insulin use was coming down and my glucose was coming down. So I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This, this whole thing is backwards. It doesn't make any sense. Do you, do you think you have like an alien metabolism or, or do you think that a lot of more people would benefit like this? Like you did? Yeah. So I, when I was go, I put myself back to graduate school to go get a PhD in nutritional biochemistry so that I could understand what was happening inside of my own body. And while I was there, I literally, I kid you not, I had one question. And that one question was, am I a freak of nature? what the hell is happening inside of my body? Because is, is, am I, just like you said, do I have some weird alien metabolism that is only relevant to me? Or is this something that actually could benefit other people? And while I was at school, I uncovered you know, hundreds and th- actually thousands of research papers about the subject of diabetes. And there was a whole collection of these papers that were that specifically, literally, exactly described what I was experiencing in my own body. And then really? I delved deeper and deeper and deeper and found out that this... Uh, this carbohydrate insulin model that, that the diabetes world operates off of, that the more carbohydrate you eat, the more insulin you need, and or the more carbohydrate you eat, the fatter you get, and the harder your pancreas has to work. That whole story is convoluted and, and only is, is correct in very specific situations, but the whole story has gotten way, way, way too simplified, overly simplified. And the actual biochemistry is incorrect. So I had to learn that the yeah. hard way. And then Robbie and I ended up meeting each other and deciding that we wanted to teach people how to transition to a plant-based diet. So that's what we've been doing over the past couple of years. And we've helped now. I can't even count the number of people. Let's cut, you know, anywhere from five to 15,000 people, how to follow in our footsteps with unbelievable success. Because again, Robbie and I are not, we're not, and there's nothing special about us. We just happen to be translating the true science of uh, insulin resistance and, and carbohydrate metabolism. And because of that, we okay. just let the science do the work. Well, before we move on, I want to ask you about some of the specifics. But Robbie, you know, we've been, bad joke, chewing the fat here for a while. What, what's your backstory? <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> my story is, is very similar to Cyrus and, and the experience that I had. I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes in 2000. And my older brother was diagnosed eight years prior to me. So I was actually quite familiar with type 1 diabetes. I knew what the symptoms were. And I was complaining to my mom. I said, hey, I'm thirsty all the time. I'm going to the bathroom all the time. I think I have type 1 diabetes just like Steve. And she said, no, no, don't be silly. You don't have diabetes. 
And a few weeks passed. She was in Florida looking at homes. We were going to move there. I was back home in Minnesota staying with my brother. And she called to check in and said, hey, how are things going? I said, mom, I couldn't sleep last night. I was cramping. She said, okay, go upstairs. Use your brother's blood glucose meter and test yourself. And I was well over 400, which is over four times the number I was supposed to be. Nobody who is non-diabetic should have a blood glucose of 400. So my brother said, yep, you have type 1 diabetes, pack your bag, you're going to be in the hospital for a few nights. So we went and got the confirmation from the regular doctor. I stayed in the hospital for one night and my parents flew back. And I just remember my dad saying, it's okay, you can still have a great life and all your dreams can come true. It's just an inconvenience. That's good. Yeah, it's a very, very supportive environment. So I lived in Minnesota at the time. My parents wanted to make sure we had the best medical care possible. So we drove to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. I had an endocrinologist, a psychologist, a nutritionist, and nobody taught me what we are teaching now at Mastering Diabetes. So the book we wrote is what we wish we had been taught. Nobody said anything about maximizing your insulin sensitivity, how that impacts your energy now or your your long-term chronic disease risk. None of that. I just was told to follow a standard American diet and they wanted me to feel normal. That's one of the key things being taught in the world of type one diabetes. Do you get to be just like your friends, just learn how to inject insulin and that's it. So I went on my way and I did that. And eventually I, I developed you know, typical standard American diet symptoms. I had terrible acne as a teenager. So I tried everything. I had pills, I did all kinds of creams. I went to the office and got laser treatments, microdermal abrasion treatments. Nothing worked. They eventually put me on Accutane, which is the most serious drug you can take. And your parents actually have to sign a waiver because some people have committed suicide after getting on that drug. So it's a last ditch effort. I had plantar fasciitis, which was frustrating as a competitive tennis player. That was one of the reasons we moved to Florida so I could have you know, better competition down there. And uh, I wore these big blue boots at night, which was really uncomfortable, but just had to do it. I would get sick every year, even though I took Nasonex, Claritin D, I had warts on my feet, just frustrating symptoms. And eventually I came across the same guru that Cyrus came across. This guy's name is uh, Doug Graham. And he taught me how to eat a low-fat plant-based whole food diet, which I was transitioning from a plant-based ketogenic diet. So I was eating very, very low-carbohydrate foods, minimizing my fruit. Actually, I was having no fruit at that time. And just eating lots of, lots of vegetables, lots of oils, lots of nuts and seeds. And the change that I saw, again, very similar to Cyrus, just this dramatic improvement while increasing my carbohydrate intake, which you shouldn't necessarily expect that you're going to see diabetes improvements when you're doing that based on what we've been taught. So I actually saw a 900% change in my insulin sensitivity, where I was increasing my daily carbohydrate intake from a total of 70 grams, including fiber. Now I eat over 700 grams of carbohydrate energy, including all the fiber that I'm consuming. So big change in carbohydrate energy. And then I don't need to take large amounts of insulin. I take, I inject an appropriate amount of insulin. That's the goal for anybody living with insulin dependent diabetes is to inject the same amount of insulin. Your pancreas would have normally secreted a physiological normal amount of insulin. That's what I use about 27 units of insulin per day, eating about 700 grams of carbohydrate per day. So my plantar fasciitis went away. My skin cleared up. I don't take any allergy medications and I don't have allergies. I don't get sick each year my warts on my feet disappeared. And now I have a ton of energy. And it's this day by day experience, literally meal by meal experience that 
Cyrus and I and all the other insulin dependent people living with diabetes around the world, we are these amazing test subjects for how can we make insulin work more efficiently. So every time we eat food, we inject, we know exactly how much insulin we're injecting. We count the carbohydrates so we know how much insulin to inject and we monitor our blood glucose, whether we're pricking our fingers 10 times a day or a lot of us have continuous glucose monitors. So I have a CGM that tells me my blood glucose every five minutes. And if it goes high or low, my phone beeps at me. Okay, you have one too. You have the Dexcom or you have the Yeah, I have the, I have the Dexcom G6. Okay. I this is fascinating. It. I hope we get to talk a lot about what, what's going on for you because I think it would be fun and, inter- and interesting for the audience. But um, yeah, so, so we have this data and we're asking ourselves, okay, you know, when I inject this insulin, <laughs> how, much, how much carbohydrate am I consuming? What's my blood glucose value? It's like, how well is insulin working? And we're these just amazing test subjects. And so, um, you know, a goal for people living with type 1 diabetes is to get your time in range to 70%. The time in range is just a measure of how, how large of a portion of the day are you spending between 70 and 180 for people living with type 1 diabetes. And the goal they set is, you know, 70% is the minimum. And my time in range is 92%. And my A1C is 5.3%. So it's just, an, and we're seeing this repeatedly with our clients where they eat more carbohydrate energy, they decrease their fat intake, they have better blood glucose control, and it's very clear because we can now see it with CGM data, which is even more important than A1C because you can see whether they're going high or low all the time. And, and people just start to see their insulin sensitivity improve and then chronic diseases that are associated with insulin resistance start to improve and, and oftentimes reverse, whether that's fatty liver disease, chronic kidney disease, people starting with high blood pressure, high cholesterol. Um, we, can, we can prevent Alzheimer's. We can improve symptoms of people struggling with PCOS. So it's really all comes down to this concept of insulin resistance and how can we make insulin work more efficiently. That's what we teach. That's what our book is about. And um, that's how you can reverse prediabetes and reverse type 2 diabetes in the vast majority of cases. Well, let's get into some of the biochemistry. So what's wrong with the current models? Like how, what, what does modulate insulin? That's a great question. So for the longest time, this idea that carbohydrates are the only macronutrient that modulate insulin. Um, you know, it was kind of invented 50, 60, 70 years ago. And over the course of time, researchers have discovered that, yeah, carbohydrates are the macronutrient that trigger, that stimulate the largest biological need for insulin. But in addition to that, uh, amino acids from protein can also stimulate insulin secretion. And now, interestingly, Uh, fatty acids, especially saturated fatty acids, can also stimulate the need for insulin secretion. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. So the truth is that there's no one nutrient that triggers insulin secretion. It's actually a whole cascade, a whole collection of them. Um, But again, what what the diabetes world focuses on is carbohydrate, carbohydrate, carbohydrate. And the message gets a little convoluted because people are told that when you eat carbohydrate energy, carbohydrates turn into sugar and sugar makes you fat and sugar makes you more diabetic. And the truth is that sugar, the way that we, the way that the research world knows is shouldn't really be just talked about in isolation. Like the word sugar itself is kind of dangerous because it's misleading. Refined sugar and natural sugar are, have two fundamentally different 
mechanisms by which they um, are, are metabolized and promote insulin secretion inside of your body. Okay. So when people say, oh, sugar's bad for you, the answer that what they should be saying is refined sugar can stimulate excess insulin secretion. Refined sugar can increase the amount of fat deposition inside of your liver. Refined sugar can trigger insulin resistance inside of your liver. All of those are true statements. But to say carbohydrates uh, metabolized to sugar is actually a misnomer because uh, it's not specific enough and it gets people to believe that anything that contains carbohydrate energy, even if it's a mango or a banana or a plate of quinoa, is actually bad for them and it's going to trigger a whole collection of adverse metabolic events. Does that make sense? Yeah, you know, uh, even refined sugar. So you know, I've heard of sucrose, fructose, glucose, lactose, etc. So what is refined sugar versus uh, other kinds of sugar? Like, what, what is the real problem with sugar? You know, it sounds like a, an umbrella term and needs to be broken down more. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So, so before we answer the sugar question, let's actually go backwards and ask ourselves one other question, which is, okay, fine. You know, refined sugars as a category aren't necessarily um, they don't promote optimal diabetes health or promote optimal health at all. But the, the major skeleton in the closet here is um, that saturated fat is actually a very potent trigger for a condition called insulin resistance. So what insulin resistance really is, is, a, is the storage, the, the accumulation of excess fat in tissues that are not designed to store large quantities of fat. So in your body, you really have only one tissue that's specifically metabolically designed from an enzymatic and mechanical perspective to store large quantities of fat for a long period of time. And the name of that tissue is your fat tissue or your adipose tissue. So when you consume a low carbohydrate diet, because that's what you've been told to do, what you end up doing is gravitating towards foods that are higher in fat and higher in protein. So red meat, white meat, chicken, fish, olive oil, dairy products, eggs, you name it. So when you're consuming a high fat diet or a ketogenic diet in particular, um, every single meal is higher in fat, medium in protein, and very low in its carbohydrate content. So the, the fat in the food is actually uh, in, the, in the form of triglyceride, which is basically a glycerol backbone with three fatty acids attached to it. So you actually eat triglyceride. Triglycerides go inside of your mouth. They travel down your digestive system. They get inside of your small intestine. And at that point, they are they're acted on by a collection of, of, uh, of digestive enzymes that are secreted either by the walls of your small intestine or by your liver. So, and um, excuse me, by your liver and your pancreas. So this collection of enzymes starts to, uh, starts to rip apart or digest these, these uh, triglyceride molecules and they take the glycerol backbone off and they take the fatty acid molecules. These fatty acid molecules are then absorbed through the wall of your small intestine and they're put into your blood. Once they get inside of your blood, they are packaged in these things called chylomicrons, which are these uh, little transport vesicles that are specifically designed to carry fat-soluble components. So this is where it gets interesting because these chylomicrons are sort of like in transit all throughout your, in, the, in your blood, and they happen to be more, more prevalent right after you eat a meal than they are at other times. And these chylomicrons are, are trying to deliver fatty acids to tissues. So they have an opportunity to deliver fatty acids to your adipose tissue exactly where it's supposed to go, and that's fine. But in addition to that, uh, depending on how much fat is present, these chylomicrons can also deliver fatty acids to other tissues, including your muscle and your liver. So what ends up happening is that when you're consuming a low carbohydrate slash high fat diet, um, fatty acids are delivered to all three, three tissues at the same time. They go to your liver, they go to your muscle, and they go to your adipose tissue. 
Now, the research actually indicates that your adipose tissue is technically speaking a, a safe place to keep fatty acids. So under normal circumstances, if, if you could redesign human metabolism such that these chylomicrons would deliver fat only to your adipose tissue, then diabetes wouldn't really be that big of a problem. It, it wouldn't be nearly uh, as, as problematic as it is today. The problem is that when there's a spillover outside of the adipose tissue and these fatty acids accumulate inside of your liver and muscle, they then trigger this problem called insulin resistance. So your liver and muscle are designed to be able to absorb small amounts of fatty acids. Um, and they're actually designed to operate off of glucose and absorb glucose and store glucose as glycogen and then use that as its primary energy source. So when there's excess fatty acids, they get inside of both of these tissues. And uh, these tissues are basically, they respond very quickly to an, a, a fatty acid overload. And the way that they respond is basically say, okay, what they sense is energy coming inside of a cell. They say, wait, there's a lot of energy coming inside of the cell. Wait a minute, we don't need all this energy. So what they try and do is block more energy from coming inside. And one of the most effective ways to block energy from coming inside of a cell is to limit your ability to interact with insulin because insulin is, a, is the master hormone that's responsible for, it's, it's the master anabolic hormone inside of your body, period, end of story. It promotes more synthetic processes than any other hormone in your body, more than growth hormone, more than testosterone, more than IGF-1, you name it. So if you want to limit your ability to absorb energy, all you have to do is limit your ability to communicate with insulin. And as soon as you do that, then you've basically temporarily solved the problem. So your liver and muscle cells actually create their own insulin resistant symptom because what they're trying to do is block excess energy from coming inside. And it's their way of basically preventing more fatty acid accumulation over the course of time. So, so these, uh, these cells are changing their, uh, I guess, their membrane receptors to make it less likely for insulin to enter? Yeah, exactly. There's a number of ways to do it. Now, first of all, Saturated fatty acids can actually give rise to intracellular breakdown products called diacylglycerols and ceramides. And the two of those components can actually reverse communicate with the insulin receptor on the inside. And it can actually uh, cause a post-translational modification, aka it can, it can modify the protein, the actual insulin receptor, to make the insulin receptor less effective. And then in addition to that, the cell also starts to, you know, invaginate or sort of like pull in a lot of insulin receptors. So now you have fewer insulin receptors and the ones that are there are just less effective. So the problem is created by an excess accumulation of, of fatty acids, but then here's the kicker. Suppose you're eating a low fat, uh, sorry, a high fat diet or a low carbohydrate diet for some period of time. And, and this happens. Um, if, as soon as you try and go eat something that's carbohydrate rich, like a banana, right? Again, yeah. that contains natural whole carbohydrate energy or you have a plate of quinoa, or you have some raisins, or you have a peach. Um, as soon as those carbohydrate molecules are broken down into glucose, the glucose now is going to be free-floating in circulation. And the glucose, again, has the same destination, your liver and your muscles, and your brain in this particular situation. But in order to get inside of your liver and muscles, it can't just march its way in. It has to be accompanied by insulin. So insulin is manufactured, or you inject insulin. Insulin knocks on the door of your liver, your muscle says, hey, there's glucose, do you want to take it up? And both of these tissues respond by saying, uh, 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 I'm not paying attention to you right now, insulin, because I'm doing that insulin resistance game. So as soon as I get rid of these excess accumulated fatty acids inside of the tissue, then I can then pay attention to you. So that causes a metabolic traffic jam, which causes glucose to pool and get trapped inside of your blood, which causes insulin 
to have to be either hyper secreted by your pancreas, or it causes people like Robbie and myself to have to inject more insulin in order to right. get glucose out of your blood. So it causes this traffic jam. And until you really understand what caused the traffic jam in the first place, you'll never be able to solve the problem because you're constantly thinking, oh, it's the banana, it's the potato. That's what caused high blood glucose. I guess I shouldn't eat those foods. Does that make sense? Well, uh, have you observed that this works for everyone or are there a set of people that just seem to have a, a different regime going on where you know, the low carb ketogenic type eating works better for them? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, what we have noticed is that uh, there's, there's no particular demographic for whom eating a lower fat plant-based whole food diet doesn't work to the best of our knowledge. We've, we've never really run across people who are intolerant of a low fat approach or who won't get uh, dramatic insulin sensitization as a result of lowering their fat intake, right? And this goes through for true for people of all walks of the life cycle, whether you're a toddler, whether you're an adolescent, whether you're an adult, whether you're a pregnant woman, or whether you're elderly. We've seen it across every single demographic, and it seems to be a, a conserved metabolic process that works at all stages of the life cycle, which is cool. Huh. And in addition to that, we also see it working for all forms of diabetes. So again, Robbie and I have type 1 diabetes, right? right. It's an autoimmune condition. But then in addition to that, there's type 1.5 diabetes, which is an, a, an adult onset version of type 1. It also dramatically works for type 1.5s. And then the majority of people living with diabetes around the world have prediabetes and type 2 diabetes. And it's especially effective for them too, because here's the kicker, prediabetes and type 2 diabetes are caused by insulin resistance. That is the cause. So if you can reverse insulin resistance, then prediabetes and type 2 diabetes tend to fade away into the background. And we've, we've sort of tested this on thousands of people and seen very, very cool results. And I just want to add to that, the, a lot sure. of people might be like, you know, that doesn't sound right. Like you guys are really saying it works like all the time. Cause it doesn't, that's not really the case in the world of health. Like some things, you know, there's like, a, just doesn't work for everybody, but yeah. insulin sensitivity, this, this one particular, um, you know, mechanism inside the body is incredibly repeat, like repeatable. Like it's literally as just you can count on just like you can count on objects falling at 9.8 meters per second and anybody can test this just give it a sample in their in their own body and watch the results that then become undeniable so i mean in our book we have 30 recipes we put together two 21 day meal plans if somebody follows that there is no question they will see an improvement in their insulin sensitivity across the board and we just ran a virtual retreat and in three and a half days we were blown away by the results that people got in their home environment where we weren't making the food for them. People were reducing their insulin, reducing their oral medications, some people stopped blood pressure medications, some people well, lost. How, how did they know that, how do you know um, that your insulin sensitivity has improved? What are, you know, I'm sure there's blood marker ways, um, there's like, oh, I feel this versus that ways, like, what are the various ways in which people can experience that? Okay, so uh, I'll let Cyrus give you a little more scientific answer. But in general, first off, if you're living with insulin-dependent diabetes, so that's type 1, that's type 1.5, or that's type 2 that may have developed to requiring insulin, um, it's very easy to see that, okay, I've increased my carbohydrate intake, and I'm increasing the amount of glucose that I'm putting into my body, and I'm eating less insulin. So that's just like simple math, obvious to see. Now, if somebody's living with pre-diabetes or type 2 diabetes and they're not injecting insulin, they're using something like metformin or Victoza or some of the other medications on the market, 
you can you can make an assumption that okay, look, I started to follow the mastering diabetes method. I'm eating way more carbohydrate. I need less medication. Like the same amount of medication has been driving me low, so I have to reduce my medications. My my fasting blood glucose is going down. So you could you know, like assume that that's an improvement, but to be more objective, you would have to have that person get a fasting insulin test before they started the program and then go right. ahead and test it once they're doing the program. So one of my favorite stories to share is Tammy. Tammy joined our coaching program. She had an A1C of 7.1%. She was living with fatty liver disease. She had chronic pain in her knees and she was just flat out struggling. She was also using 2000 milligrams of metformin. So she also had a fasting insulin level of 17.4 and it should be somewhere between four and eight. So she's basically doubled the highest level of fasting insulin she should have in her body. So she has high levels of insulin in her blood. She has high blood glucose readings. We know that based on her A1C and she's using a diabetes medication. This is typical pathological insulin resistance right here. She starts following her method. She's kicking and screaming, not really believing this is going to work. And one time she just, I met her at the farmer's market and I was like, look, Tammy, just like do what we say. She was still struggling. And then one time she called Cyrus while she was at the grocery store and Cyrus just like said, look, buy this, buy this, buy this, go home and eat it. She said, okay, yeah. fine. So she listens. She finally does it. And it took her some time, but she ends up after seven months, she ends up losing 38 pounds. She stops taking metformin. Her A1C is 5.3%. Her fasting blood glucose is 93 and her fasting insulin level came down into range. It's now 5.2. So she now has a normal amount of insulin being produced by her body. She has normal blood glucose levels. She doesn't use diabetes medication anymore. Oh, and she also reversed fatty liver disease and the pain in her knees are gone. She sends us pictures of her at the top of a pyramid. So like that's your perfect example of having the data to show this woman maximized her insulin sensitivity got rid of diabetes and got rid of the side effects of diabetes. So what, what's a sample uh, diet plan for, you know, a couple of meals worth? Go ahead, Cyrus. Yeah. So it, it depends on, you know, there's many ways to slice it, but um, a simple way to think about this is what we educate people how to, what to do is to eat um, more sort of like fruit centric meals first thing in the morning. Um, and the reason for that is because, um, first of all, people actually enjoy eating fruit, especially people with diabetes who have been avoiding it for many, many years. Um, secondarily, we find that for some reason, unbeknownst to us, uh, people who eat more fruit actually end up with better blood glucose control than people who eat less fruit. So, um, we encourage people to eat, you know, a fruit friendly breakfast, which includes something like four servings of fruit, whether it's mangoes, papayas, bananas, peaches, oranges, nectarines, you name it, effectively, whatever's in season, uh, you put it into a bowl. Um, and then you also sprinkle a little bit of, uh, you know, ground chia seeds or ground flax seeds to make sure that you're getting a sufficient amount of omega-3 essential fatty acids. Um, then usually by the time lunch rolls around, we encourage people to eat more sort of uh, either starch-based uh, starch based lunch or a legume-based lunch. So that what that mean is that we encourage people to eat things like potatoes and or whole grains like millet, farro, quinoa, brown rice, you name it. Um, and then we also encourage people to eat um, legumes like beans, lentils, and peas because they tend to be incredibly uh, nutrient-dense. And they keep people full for a long period of time, which is good because it lasts all throughout the afternoon. 
then by the time dinner rolls around, we encourage people to try and limit their intake, or sort of slow down on eating fruits and slow down on eating starch-based carbohydrates and eat more non-starchy vegetables. So that's when things like, you know, salads come around um, with like p- tomatoes, cucumbers, broccoli, carrots, onions, um, cauliflower, you name it. And then, you know, if people choose to put in a little bit of starchy vegetables or if they want to add a little bit more legumes to that meal, it's totally fine. But if you kind of follow this sort of like fruit heavier, starch heavier than non-starchy formula throughout the day, it tends to give very, very, very solid blood glucose control all throughout a 24-hour period and allows people to go to sleep at night without worrying about whether their blood glucose is going to go high. And when they do, when we do this, we find that we get actually pretty darn good results. How is this different from the um, standard American diet? Is it just a lot less sugar, but you're still having, you know, plenty of carbs and everything? Is, is there, I mean, what are the nuances there to it? What makes it really different? There's a lot of things that make it, it totally different. Um, <clears throat> Robbie, do you want to go into detail about the uh, red light, yellow light, green light foods? Because we sort of classify foods into one of these three different categories. Ooh, and yes. It helps you sort of understand how to how this differentiates from itself from a standard American diet. Absolutely. So we've we want to make this very simple and, and easy to apply and, and not overwhelming. So when you think about you know these categories of food that you can eat and then you just sort of you know follow our recipes, it becomes really simple. The green light category starts out with fruits. So that's all the fruits you can think of: apples, pears, mangoes, grapes, pineapples. We don't worry about low glycemic or high glycemic. When you're eating these foods in a low-fat environment, you're going to be just fine. So you got fruits, then you have starchy vegetables like potatoes, yams, butternut squash. Then you have peas and lentils. Then you get into intact whole grains like Cyrus was listing, farro, millet, quinoa. Then you have non-starchy vegetables. That would be bell peppers, carrots. You put eggplants in there. Then leafy greens like lettuce, arugula, spinach, Swiss chard, and you have herbs and spices and mushrooms. The green light category, you can literally eat when you're hungry until you're satisfied. And one of the major reasons here and how this differs from the standard American diet is that these foods are loaded with water and fiber. And over 90% of everybody in America does not meet the basic requirement for fiber per day. And the green light foods, they fill you up, they get you satisfied to help you keep a steady blood glucose level because of the fiber, the water content, and the nutrient density, vitamins, minerals, phytochemicals, antioxidants. Now, the yellow light category, these are still healthy, nutrient-dense foods, but you got to be careful of how much you're consuming because too much can lead to the whole issue of excess fat in tissues that are not designed to store fat, just like Cyrus explained earlier. So... This includes avocado, nuts and seeds, coconut meat, olives, a special fruit called durian would be in this category. Ugh. We're going to put soy. <laughs> Have you ever had durian? I've seen it on like bizarre <laughs> foods and all that. People always retch <laughs> when they contemplate it. Yeah, it's a fun, it's a fun fruit. We also have soy products in this category. So that's going to include tempeh and, and tofu and edamame. And again, these are all healthy foods, but they're all high in their fat content. And it's very simple to eat too much of them, which leads to insulin resistance and also prevents weight loss. So this is a big, big mistake that a lot of people are making when they try to adopt a more plant-based lifestyle. We also have breads and some pastas in the yellow light category because they're a little bit more processed. And that's gonna also 
prevent you from achieving weight loss and managing your blood glucose as well as you're looking to, to do. The red light category, these are gonna include foods that um, number one, are known to cause insulin resistance due to high saturated fat content. That's a lot of animal products in there. So you can have red meat in there. Um, we have chicken, fish, um, seafood is in this category as well. They also are higher in their advanced glycation end products. Heme iron is a concern with animal foods. Excess sodium is a concern. So there's a lot that goes on with this picture of insulin resistance. And we really covered all in detail in our book, but that's the reason why these foods are in the red light category. They, they are known to be problematic when it comes to insulin resistance. And we also obviously have packaged foods. So even you know the modern vegan foods like a Beyond Meat Burger or something like that, nobody's saying that's healthy, okay? That is a food that's very high in fat. It's very, it's processed, there's plenty of additives in there. It, it's not good. And obviously pastries and cakes and all that stuff. And oils, we put oils in the, red light category, the calorie density is a major concern. When you're consuming oil, you've taken out the water, you've taken out the fiber, the vitamins, the minerals, the antioxidants, the carbohydrate, the protein, you're left with essentially pure fat. Maybe if you have a very, very high quality oil, a very minimal amount of nutrition, but it's essentially pure fat. And this is again, very problematic for causing insulin resistance. And as soon as people remove that from their diet, remove that from their cooking, they see an improvement in their blood glucose control and a reduction in their medication use. So that's a big one. And people learn a lot about that, again, through our program and through applying it. As people living with type one, if we end up going to a restaurant and a little bit of oil slips in, we boom, see it immediately. Our blood glucose starts to elevate. We need more insulin to correct for it. It's very, um, it's very profound and, and undeniable for people living with diabetes. What are, um, in the world of oils, which ones uh, seem to be worse than others? Like, you know, canola, grapeseed, olive oil, et cetera. So actually, truth be told, when it comes to insulin resistance, all oils are extremely problematic. Um, and it would be nice to be able to say, okay, well, I'll have a little bit of canola oil, but not olive oil, or have some coconut oil instead of MCT oil. But the truth is that, just like Robbie was saying, because because oil is a pure uh, is a pure fat, meaning that if you okay, let's just take a step backwards here. Um, when you eat a whole food, give me an example of, of any whole food that comes from the plant world. Anything? Avocado. Perfect. Okay, so an avocado is a whole food, and the way that you know it's a whole food is because it contains carbohydrate and fat and protein. It also contains minerals, vitamins, fiber, water antioxidants and phytochemicals. It's a total of nine components that all kind of work together and that these, there's, there's protective micronutrients that then slow down the rate at which the macronutrients are absorbed and, and transported. And that's a good thing because it sort of allows the digestive process to happen in a sort of a physiologically normal manner. And it prevents against you know, glucose spikes and insulin spikes. When you're consuming something like a, whether it's a refined sugar, like you asked earlier about, or whether it's a refined fat that turns into an oil, whenever you're doing that, you, what you've done is you've stripped away all the protective micronutrients and you've actually stripped away some of the protective macronutrients. So in the case of oil, as an example, you have pure fatty acids, uh, no cholesterol, uh, no amino acids, no protein, no carbohydrate energy, no or minimal vitamins, minimal minerals zero water, zero fiber, 
low phytochemicals. So as a result of that, what you've done is you've actually taken away many of the protective components that come along with a whole food. And as a result of that, it just becomes very problematic because it's such a refined substance that it triggers and sort of abnormal physiology that then can lead to many disease processes. Well, what, what are the critical elements that are missing from processed foods that, you know, make them no good? Are you able to isolate them? I mean, would it ever be reasonable to try to add in something to a processed food to make it more uh, whole-like and better for you? Is that just a Band-Aid on uh, like a gaping wound? <laughs> yeah, this is a great, great question. I mean, you're asking all the right questions, no question. Um, but the truth is that, you know, if you take a, a packaged and processed food, uh, let's take an example. How about like, I don't know, a, cr- a cracker, right? A box of crackers. And you think to yourself, okay, well, this is low fat, just like Robbie and Cyrus are saying, you know, it's mainly carbohydrate. Okay. So this should actually be healthy for me. But if you really try and figure out how did that cracker turn into a cracker, what you'll find is that the original ingredients, which made up that cracker, call it flax seeds and uh, wheat and maybe some garbanzo beans, just for the sake of argument. Um, what they had to do is go through like a relatively intense uh, chemical refining process in order to turn into a cracker. What that means is that they had to be dehydrated. They had to be uh, ground down into a flour. They had to be reconstituted. They had to be baked. They had to be turned into an actual cracker consistency. And then in the process of doing that, they might've actually received other additions too. So sometimes they can get these quote unquote natural flavorings and they can get texturizers in order to give them a very particular look and shape and feel and taste. And so in that process, you have the subtraction of fiber, the subtraction of vitamins, the subtraction of minerals, the subtraction of water. And again, those are all protective. And then you also have the addition of stabilizers, um, texturizers, natural, you know, quote unquote, natural flavorings. And then other times they just, they don't even, they're not even natural. They have MSG on them. Um, and they have, you know, they could put high fructose corn syrup inside the package. So you end up subtracting protective micronutrients and you end up adding problematic ingredients and the combination of two of those can turn into a metabolic disaster. So I have, I have a question for you. So you're, you're using sure. the Dexcom G6. Um, yeah. Are you also using, you know, medications to control your blood glucose? No, I, I just, you know, I, my wife uses the, uh, well, she used the G6. Now she uses the Lifestyle Libre. And there's trade-offs with both. But, um, you know, I wanted to see more than just sticking myself. Like she doesn't mind sticking herself a lot. I hate it. So it was a lot easier to do this. Yeah. But I noticed that you miss out, you know, like when they take your fasting blood glucose, uh, you don't see any of the curve or like for her, for instance, uh, if she eats something that, you know, causes a, an insulin spike, her blood sugar goes way up quick and then way down quick. Mm. And mine, if I'm eating something not so good, it'll trend up and up and up and then come down slowly. You know? so, so you and your wife are both living with diabetes. Well, I would say it's pre, but uh, it's, you know, we have just very different responses in terms of our curves and everything. And you wouldn't yeah. see any of that if you, if you just stuck yourself, you know, after two hours, you'd miss everything that happens. That's right. There's so just right. been a really useful tool there. But when I ask, you know, people, well, what does this mean? I noticed during the night, uh, you know, it started coming up a few hours before I woke, you know, why did that happen? Oh, maybe your cortisol is increasing. And you know, that's why, I mean, there's still, even with these CGMs, there's still a lot of uh, unknowns, is what I found. Agreed. So I agree you know, that's, that's been part of my experience, you know. 
Okay, so I, I have a proposition for you here and feel free to say yes or no. Uh, yeah. How would you like to, uh, we can help you transition to a low-fat plant-based whole food diet. Give us 30 days. And when I say that, I mean, let's do an experiment where we put you on a low-fat plant-based whole food diet for 30 days and we monitor closely what's happening to your blood glucose values and your overall blood glucose profile. And then in addition, things like body weight changes and how do you feel and how's your energy levels and things like that. And if you're willing to go down this, I think you're going to be actually pretty pleasantly surprised because when you feel it and when you see it, especially on your CGM, it's pretty unmistakable. So what do you think? Well, I can tell you so far, and I'm not saying yes or no, I can tell you my experience. Um, You know, I've done keto for a while and uh, I lost like, you know, like 45 pounds doing it and felt much better and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife didn't do well doing that. She seems to just do better eating a lot more plants and everything. So I'm mm-hmm. not saying it won't work for me or anything. It just seems like uh, her physiology is different from mine and she feels better eating a different way than I've eaten yeah. in the past. You know, I got you. So I that's why I was wondering, you know, who this uh, other people it just doesn't work for, or, you know, I just wonder how many paradigms of eating seem to work. Like, like for instance, you know, the doctor I go to is a concierge doc. And he's been on carnivore diet for two years. Mm-hmm. It's hard. I don't know how he does it, but mm-hmm. he looks amazing. He said he feels great and sure. everything. And then some people I've seen that are vegans, they look awful. Like they're just a mushy pile of goo. <laughs> <laughs> so I yeah. just, you know, I, I wonder, um, you know, is there one size fits all or, or are there other paradigms for different people? I yeah. So, so that's a great question. And one of the things I, I have come to learn over the course of, uh, you know, studying nutrition is that, uh, first of all, there, number one, there's no one size fits all approach. So for, for me to say, you know, eating a low fat plant-based whole food diet is the solution for all humankind. That's just kind of a, I don't know, it's not biologically accurate and it's a little bit pompous and arrogant. So I'll be the first person to say that, but I will be also willing to say that there is an over a low fat plant-based whole food diet works for an overwhelming majority of all people that we have read about in the research. Um, whose research we've analyzed, and then also people who, with whom we've worked. So there's a strong possibility that eating a low-fat plant-based whole food diet is going to work. And if it hasn't worked in the past, that's okay. But there could be small modifications that make a big difference that could truly you know, change the way you feel and ch- change the way your blood glucose responds, as one example. Um, so yeah, I mean, off, it, offline, we can, uh, we can definitely talk about it and customize it. I don't want to make this, you know, just about me and stuff is for listeners, but, um, for sure. you know, like uh, the, the plan I was using wasn't by any means perfect. You know, when I first started doing like, uh, mm-hmm. essentially keto eating, I was like ravenous, you know, and, uh, I lost a bunch of weight, but then it plateaued and just would not move after that, you know? And then, yeah. Right, so there's, you know, there's a lot going on. Um, Absolutely. So yeah, there's, like there's a lot going on. Conversation. No question. Um, wh- yeah. when it comes to the ketogenic diet though, that's another really interesting one. I'm glad you brought it up actually, because, it is a true statement that when you adopt a ketogenic diet, you can lose weight relatively quickly. It's a very effective rapid weight loss uh, formula. And in addition to that, because you're losing weight rapidly, uh, a number of other biomarkers can start to improve uh, in a short period of time, including you can drop your total cholesterol level. You can drop your fasting blood glucose. You can drop your fasting insulin level. You can drop your C-reactive protein. You can drop your blood pressure. And all of these things are, are great things. There's no question about it. Um, but what the research actually indicates is that people who eat a lower carbohydrate diet um, slash higher fat diet over the course of time, especially if it contains animal products, end up 
with uh, an increased risk for other chronic diseases, including hypertension and uh, obesity and um, cancer. So it's important to know that like the short-term results matter, no questions asked, but the the short-term results don't always equal the long-term results. And, um, you know, once you really fundamentally understand that, you can take somebody that, you know, has lost a dramatic amount of weight and feels good and looks good. But if you, if you take a microscope and go inside of their blood vessels and go inside of their liver and go inside of their kidney and try and find out what's actually happening, sometimes that tells a different story. Yeah. Yeah. Well, definitely. I, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I don't know. I'd have to, like I said, talk to you guys about it offline, but uh, yeah, for sure. in some ways I'd be scared to do it and that I wouldn't feel well and, you know, just being honest. So, but it doesn't mean it shouldn't be tried. For sure. For sure. And, you know, join the club because I remember being scared the first time I did it. And it turns out that's one of the greatest things I ever did for my own personal health. And again, we've tried yeah. to, you know, we've been able to help lots of people doing this. And so your fear is, is totally human, <laughs> but uh, I think yeah. there's a lot, a lot to be learned from the experimentation process. Well, very good. Well, guys, um, for right now, we're just about out of time. What's the best way for people to, uh, to follow up and go from here? Okay. So the best place to go to is our, our website, masteringdiabetes.org. And we actually have a quiz where people can see how insulin resistant are they and decide what type of lifestyle changes to make from there. So lots of information. We also have a podcast. People can find us on all the podcast platforms. Just type in Mastering Diabetes. And nice. you can pick up our book anywhere books are sold. Amazon's the easiest place to get it. We read our own audiobook, So you can get that on Audible or Google Play. We added some extra thoughts before each chapter, what we were thinking about, our, our writing process, and some extra information got thrown in the audiobook as well. We also have the Kindle version, the Nook version. If anybody's living outside the United States, they can get it from bookdepository.com and they actually ship it for free all over the world. It's incredible. And they actually discount the price of the book. So that's easy wow. to get anywhere in the world. And we're on social media at Mastering Diabetes on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. So we're out there uh, on all the platforms just spreading some uh, evidence-based information to help people maximize their insulin sensitivity and uh, reach their best health. And, and one more thing to, uh, to add is that uh, for those of you that like to read books, uh, pick up the Mastering Diabetes book. It's, it actually became a New York Times bestseller, which was awesome. Um, so I'd encourage you to go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble online, pick up that book, and really learn the, the, the detailed ins and outs of this whole process because there's a lot to be learned. And a lot of the, the, the rhetoric in the world of diabetes is, can be problematic. And once you, once you really learn it, it makes, it makes all the difference in the world. Okay. Well, guys, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it big time. Absolutely. Thank you, Rich. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.